I wanted to take a moment to introduce myself. Uh, I know I've had the opportunity to meet several of you, um, but if I haven't, my name is Stephen Sprague. I am the Dean of Students at Heritage Christian Academy, a minister in the Presbyterian Church in America, and my family are members here at Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And so if you haven't had the opportunity to, to meet us in person, I'm sure you will eventually. Uh, my wife's name is Madison. I have uh, Melody, Grace, Judah Steadfast, Eden Joy, and Hazel Hope. And Eden Joy, Lord willing, you'll get to meet in heaven one day, but the rest of us, we are extreme extroverts. Um, as evidence in the first service, I was late to get to, I don't know what you, I'm not, I don't come from a reform background, so we always called this the stage, um, but I believe that's not the proper term, but I, I had to speed walk up here because of my excellency in passing the piece. Um, so, and my children follow suit, so you will, I'm sure, get to know us uh, as time allows. It's my pleasure to get to bring to you all the word this morning as we look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. And I want to set the stage a little bit, kind of prepare us for this passage um, by letting you kind of in on what's going on in the history of Israel and the book of Deuteronomy. And so at this point, the Israelites are at the edge of the promised land. They're in what they call the plains of Moab, looking in. And there's this sort of covenant renewal ceremony happening where they're hearing again the law uh, we often call the law of Moses, but the, the law uh, of Yahweh, the law of God, all the things that is expected of them as God's people as they enter into the land. Um, and it's, it's, it's weighty. And then, and when you get to the end, you have uh, Deuteronomy 27 through 29, these uh, sections that are almost nothing but, but blessings and curses. Uh, and in this section, Deuteronomy 27 through 29, uh, there's a, definitely a contrast. Right? The blessings, they're amazing, they're wonderful, and it's clear that these are things that are gracious. That, that God is being merciful and kind and giving to the Israelite people that which they don't deserve. It's grace. and it, It's bountiful. It's, it's incredible. And then the curses are just depressing overwhelming, treacherous, ferocious. Uh, it's, it's the wrath of God. And it's clear that these are things that are deserved based on either disobeying the law or not doing what you are supposed to do. And so I want to read a couple of excerpts just to kind of set the stage for our reading of Deuteronomy 30. Uh, this is Deuteronomy 28, 10 through 12. And these are our blessings, undeserved, amazing blessings. It says this, And all the peoples of the earth shall see that you are called by the name of the Lord. And they shall be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your livestock, and in the fruit of your ground, within the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season, and to bless all the works of your hands. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. So there's this general sense of the blessings are prosperity, wealth, uh, riches, just thriving in this land to the point where they're better than the other nations and known among the other nations. They don't need to, to have support from the nations. In fact, they're the ones helping support the other nations and being a blessing to them. And then you get to the curses, and the curses are terrifying. In fact, uh, D.A. Carson and Tim Keller both say these are some of the most ferocious and fierce passages of Scripture in the Bible. Uh, and to use a term from my childhood, I would say they're, they're equivalent to what we call nightmare fuel, which is if you haven't heard that term, it's essentially something you experience, read about, watch, hear about during the day, that then at night, 
will keep you up and give you nightmares. And, and that is Deuteronomy 28, 58 through 68, just an excerpt of the, the curses. It says this, If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions, afflictions severe and lasting, and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you again all the diseases of Egypt, of which you were afraid, and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number, because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God. And as the Lord took delight in doing you good and multiplying you, so the Lord will take delight in bringing ruin upon you and destroying you. And you shall be plucked off the land that you are entering to take possession of it. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples, from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations you shall find no respite, and there shall be no resting place for the sole of your foot. But the Lord will give you there a trembling heart and failing eyes and a languishing soul. Your life shall hang in doubt before you. Night and day you shall be in dread and have a no assurance of life. In the morning you shall say, if only it were evening. And at evening you shall say, if only it were morning, because of the dread that your heart shall feel and the sights that your eyes shall see. And the Lord will bring you back in ships to Egypt, a journey that I promise that you should never make again. And there you shall offer yourselves for sale to your enemies as male and female slaves, but there will be no buyer. That's really bad. Like, it's really bad. I don't know if you caught some of the things in there, but initially it says, you will receive all the plagues that were present at Egypt. Not only that, but all the other plagues that are out there that we didn't even mention you will receive. So everything, every disease that could come upon you will come upon you. You will be afraid day and night, fearing that you will die. At nighttime, you will say, I wish it was morning because this is the worst. And during the morning, you will say, I wish it was nighttime because this is the worst. Not only that, but they're going to be cast out among the nations and they'll go back to Egypt and try and sell themselves as slaves to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will say, we don't even want you. Yikes, it's really bad. That's really important, though, because it sets the stage for Deuteronomy 30. If you look at the first verse, it says, When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse. So Moses is saying from the very beginning, you're going to fail. This is the reading of the word of the Lord, Deuteronomy 30. When all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, which I have set before you, And you call them to mind among all the nations where the Lord your God has driven you. And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today, with all your heart and with all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you're outcasts or in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will take you. And the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your fathers possessed, that you may possess it. And he will make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. And the Lord your God will put all these curses on your foes and enemies who persecuted you. And you shall again obey the voice of the Lord and keep all his commandments that I command you today. 
The Lord your God will make you abundantly prosperous in all the work of your hand, in the fruit of your womb, and in the fruit of your cattle, and in the fruit of your ground. For the Lord will again take delight in prospering you, as he took delight in your fathers, when you obey the voice of the Lord your God, to keep his commandments and his statutes that are written in this book of the law, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart, so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, By loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall not surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give them. Let us pray. Father, we come before you this morning asking that you bless your word. As we hear it, would you allow your word to challenge us in our sins, to equip us in this life, to give us a greater hope in your son, Jesus Christ, for our salvation. Lord, please help me to set myself aside and faithfully and truthfully preach your word. And may it go forth in power. And at the same time, Lord, I I pray in humility that you will, where I speak in weakness or error, please Remove it from our hearts and minds that so does not take root. It's in Christ's name that I pray all these things. Amen. This is a, a passage that calls us to choose and to make a choice. It, it says it at the end, to choose between blessing and curse, to choose between life and death. In one sense, I'll argue it, it calls us to choose between heaven and hell. And it should cause us to ask ourselves the question, what do we choose? What do I choose? What do you choose? The way of life or the way of death? This is also a passage that presents to us a tension that we see throughout the Scripture. A tension of the reality that God is holy and just. He's a God who hates sin and judges it thoroughly and completely. And yet, there's a God who's loving and merciful, who restores and blesses the sinner out of his grace and his mercy. And because of that, this passage can be a a bit of a conundrum because this passage presents God as being all those things, one and the same, because he is. But for us as sinners, sometimes there's, there's conflict and it might be hard to reconcile. Our gut tells us a few things. Just as humans, 
according to the book of Romans, it tells us that we're sinful, that we're flawed, that we do what is wrong and we don't do what is right. It's innate in us. And yet, we desire and want a God that is loving and kind and merciful, merciful and doting. And yet, we know that God is perfect and righteous and has to be. And so, there's this, this conflict of, uh, of can it be? That God can be all those things. And it's such that a lot of critical scholars, as they approach books like the book of Deuteronomy, they'll argue that this must have been written by multiple authors. Because surely someone couldn't conceivably think that God could be both righteous and just and loving and merciful. So it must be two different people with two different perceptions of God. And yet I would argue that that's not what you see here. That you see a God who is just and righteous and yet loving and merciful and compassionate and full of grace. This passage confronts, it clarifies, and it corrects those thoughts. So we have, as we're, as we're looking at this today, three points. You can find them in your insert in the bulletin. It's simple death, resurrection, and life. First, we're going to look at, at death here. Now, Moses, I like to call him, especially here, uh, as a prophet is, is kind of like an anti-motivational speaker. I mean, if you can think of like what a motivational speaker does, right? Like, sh- shoot for the stars. If you can dream it, you can do it. Name it and claim it. We'll say prosperity gospel. And here Moses is, and he's saying, you're going to fail. And it's going to be bad. Like, it's, it's just real bad. It's going to be real bad. And that's what he, I can imagine if you're an Israelite, hearing this like in that day for the first time, and, and likely you're probably someone whose parents were a part of the Exodus, and now here you are, hearing the law and about to enter the land, and you're thinking, I would rather be like my parents when you were telling them, hey, God's going to save us and deliver us from this land, and you can go to your neighbor's house and get all their gold while you're leaving. And now here they are, and they're saying, Egypt doesn't even want you. It's going to be real bad. You're going to get sick with everything. Like, it's going to be bad. You will fail completely. That's what Moses is saying to his people, he's straight up telling them you're going to fail. And this, for us, for anyone that knows the history of mankind, even probably for the Israelite people during that day, this shouldn't be a surprise. If you're familiar with biblical history or the history of humanity in general, you, you know that mankind is sinful. Even if you would say don't take the Bible with, with any sort of, of merit or credentials, just looking at your own heart, we know innately that we can't live up to the standards that we have for ourselves. I had a professor in seminary, I call him doctor, when you, anytime you have professors and you call them doctor something, after you graduate, you still can't stop calling them that. Um, Sorry, that's a tangent, but Dr. Estelle, his name's Brian Estelle, Dr. Estelle, one of his greatest contributions to my education was helping me to understand that Israel in scripture, he would always say Israel in scripture is mankind on display in miniature. And what he meant by that is if you want to know, like from a bird's eye view, how you would react in any given situation apart from Christ, look at the Israelite people. You want to know how you would respond to the law, look at the history of the Israelite people, and you'll see how you would respond to the law, how you would be able to uphold it, how you would fail, all these things. Um, and it, I think it's, it's brilliant to, to think of it in this way. Israel can't live up to the standards of God. They can't. And the curse is here. They're dark, right? They're basically, at the end of the day, it's you're being cut off from God. You are no longer God's people, no longer living with God in God's land. You are cut off from God. Hating and fearing every single day. 
And I would say, I would argue that this isn't far from the language even that Jesus uses in the book of Matthew when he talks about hell. And he says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's this idea of constant misery apart from God. Now Moses, as a prophet, he nails it. Historically, if you know the history of the Israelite people, they will go into exile. They will be sent out to the lands, right? They will become slaves to the nations. It will be bad for them. But he's not just talking about Israel and the land here. There's this spiritual death that's presented here in the text as all the curses come upon Israel. And understanding the death is absolutely necessary for understanding the resurrection part of this and the life part of this. Now, I think perhaps maybe a better word to have used in the bulletin would have been regeneration or or restoration. But I I like resurrection thinking in terms of death and life as we're, we're looking at this text because it does use the terms of death and life. This idea that those who are far off, you see them cursed and far off from God, yet they repent, they believe, and they're brought from death to life here. And it's interesting because there is this transition that happens pretty quickly from like you will be cursed to you will be more prosperous and more numerous in everything. The work of your hand, the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your cattle, and the fruit of the ground. God will delight in prospering you even more than your fathers. How do you get from curse that you deserve all this to blessing and prosperity? Deuteronomy 36, I would say, is the answer. Listen to this. It says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. John Calvin, the reformer on this passage, he wrote, Moses treats the means of propitiating God by returning into the right way with an unfeigned heart. But after he has testified that God will be gracious to them, he adds that there is need of a better remedy so that being once restored by him, they may be perpetual recipients of his grace. What he means by that is you see people here repenting. You see them returning to the Lord, putting their faith back in him and in his promises. But the law demands perfect, perpetual. That means like ongoing, continual. Perfect, ongoing obedience forever. It's not enough to repent and try again. You have to be perfect continually. And that is impossible on our own as humans. That would take you right back to Deuteronomy 31. You're right there all over again and all the curses that come before it. But here, in 36, God is saying that when God resurrects somebody, when he saves somebody and brings them back to him, He does so once and for all so that now they are not perpetually, ongoing, continually being condemned by the law, but perpetually receiving the grace of God. This is the circumcision of the heart found in Deuteronomy 36. What is the circumcision of the heart? Like, What does that mean? Well, circumcision, many of you are aware of this, it was this symbolic, sacramental cutting off of a certain body part. Parents, I'll let you explain that to your children later. Uh, It was bloody, it was gross, it was painful, and part of circumcision is that it symbolized something that was bloody, terrible, and painful. 
It's kind of like, if you remember, if you were present or heard Pastor Tony's sermon on Genesis 15 from a couple weeks ago about the animal carcasses that were split apart. And then Moses was put into a deep, dark sleep and you have the, the flaming torch and the smoking fire pot pass between them. There was this ancient ceremony that was happening that had significance and it symbolized something that was meaningful. That God himself would take the wrath of the covenant upon himself in Abraham's place, in the place of Abraham's offspring. Because Abraham believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so here you have something very similar. Circumcision symbolized that you understood that if you broke the covenant, if you broke God's law, the curse that would come upon you was one of being cut off from God. For Israel, it was obvious they would be cut off from God as his people. Cut off from his presence. Cut off from his land. In circumcision, you were both physically set apart to God, but with the expectation that you would seek to live a blameless, holy, and righteous life or be cut off. And circumcision, it didn't make you holy. It marked you as holy because of the faithfulness of God, but it didn't, it didn't make you holy. Thus here, when Moses revisits the idea of circumcision of the heart, something that he had commanded the Israelites to do to themselves in Deuteronomy 10 which they couldn't actually do to themselves. You can't cut your own heart spiritually like he's talking about. Now he's making it clear God is the one who carries it out. That God will cut their hearts, allowing something internally to change so that they would now be able to obey the law. Now I want to make it clear, this, this resurrection-like circumcision of the heart, it wasn't just making them holy internally and that outwardly they would live their lives however they wanted, and it didn't matter, as we'll see. No, it was about making them holy internally, which would then enable them to live as God had called them to live, to live loving the Lord their God with all their heart, all their soul, all their mind, that they would find true life in God. And this is, I would say, nothing short of regeneration, nothing short of conversion. It's, it's what Jesus talks about when he's talking to Nicodemus and saying, you must be born again. Jeremiah the prophet would use language from here to talk about the new covenant. Language that the Apostle Paul understood as being fulfilled in Christ. And so we're back to this age-old question. If God is just and righteous and will bring about completely the punishment of sin to its fullest extent, how could he also bring his sinful people back and bless them abundantly? The same people. You and I. How could he do this? In our sin, we deserve to be cursed and cut off. You see that in the text. Because that's what sin does, then how could we also be able to obey the voice of the Lord, keep his commands, and turn to him with all our heart and with all our soul and receive the blessing that we don't deserve? In Romans 10, 6-9, Paul writes this. He's quoting Deuteronomy 30. In fact, I would say it's kind of like he's preaching from it. Paul writes, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He's quoting from this passage here. Look at verses 11 through 14. 
For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us, that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. You and I, Mr. and Mrs. Israelite in the time of Moses, Moses himself even, we will fail. We have failed. You will fail. I will fail. We already have. We've broken God's law. We will even, if, again, you don't believe in the laws of God as being meaningful in any way, we will break our own expectations that we place upon ourselves and others of what is right and wrong. We just will. As humans, we can't live up to the law and be declared righteous because of our own upholding of it. It's too hard, it's too far off to use the language of Moses. So Moses says, he asks this question, who will go to heaven for us to get the ability to uphold the law and bring it back? And what does Paul say? He says, we don't have to go up because Jesus came down. Moses says, who will go over the sea for us? When he's saying that, what he means is, who will face all the perils of death and despair that you face in the sea and will overcome them for us so that we might gain the ability to uphold the law and conquer the curse? And Paul says, we don't have to face death because Jesus Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the grave. He came up. Jesus tasted the curse of the covenant, the ultimate cutting off because of our disobedience to the law. And then when all seemed hopeless, he came up out of the grave alive. And Paul will, will say this. He'll compare the cross to a circumcision that Jesus endured for us. Because of this, we're told, if we believe that Jesus is the Lord God, that he was raised from the dead, we will be saved. We will be rescued. Our hearts will be circumcised And we will receive resurrection life. Life of those who were once dead, but now have been brought back from the dead. Right? That's resurrection. Which brings me to the last point. Life. Living. As believers, what does it look like for us then, this news, as we seek to live this life? And and I think it's important to ask because if you look at the last 10, 10 verses here in Deuteronomy 30, it's about how to live And it seems to be like after the circumcision of the heart. Why is Moses so obsessed about how God's people are to live after he has just told them they, one, can't do it on their own, and two, God has to do it for them? So the answer is is twofold. One, because God's people should live, it's very simple, in a way that pleases God and brings him glory. And coincidentally enough and conveniently, it benefits us when we live by loving God and loving others we're blessed and benefit from that. But two, because we're now able to. This side of the cross, in Christ, in the circumcision of the heart. Up until this point in Deuteronomy, the people of God have received information about the law. Like they've just, they've been hearing the law for 20 some odd chapters, hearing the law. And then the blessings and the curses. They've learned what's expected of them, what to do, how to do it, when to do it, what not to do, when not to do it, all that. And they've learned what will happen if they fail and now that they will inevitably fail. But here, 
now it's no longer talking about what is expected, but about how God will enable them to finally do what is pleasing to him. So Dr. Estelle, who I referenced earlier, he wrote of this passage, once God circumcises a believer's heart, meeting the demands of his law will no longer be beyond one's ability, albeit still performed imperfectly. The Spirit's presence and sanctification enables the person's will to be God's will. Since Christ will have descended in the new covenant age to usher in the promises, the people will have no need to say, who will go up for us heavenwards? Verse 12 and 13 continue after the spatial language of verse 11 with the desired result, so that he may cause us to do it, expressed a couple of times. Notice the frustration addressed. They are not longing for mere information. They're longing for power and ability. This section of Deuteronomy is addressing the ability to do the commands. They know what God wants them to do. They have the knowledge. They need the ability. It's in this faithful pursuit of God's will, this outworking and outpouring of his faithfulness to us in Jesus, that we're able to live lives that bring him glory. As it says in verse 20 of this passage, that they will be loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. It's in Jesus who fulfilled the law perfectly that the curse is ultimately carried out, that, that circumcision is fulfilled, that he is cut off. In Christ on the cross, that he is cut off from the Father so that we might be resurrected to new life, born again, regenerated, and brought from death to life. And it's through Christ's own resurrection that we're given a true and better life where our desire to live for him, our sense of duty to uphold his law, our passion to do so, our ability to joyously do so, they're all wed together in Christ. It's not to earn our salvation, not to earn life with God, but because it has already been earned for us in Jesus and the curse has fully and completely been carried out in him on the cross. Let us bow together as we pray. Father, we come before you today both grateful and humbled by your blessings and your love for us, which is so clearly displayed in your word. You are a God of steadfast love, a God of mercy and grace. And you have chosen for yourself as your people, us, those who are weak, those who are sinful, those who are deserving of your full curse. And we praise you that in Christ we can look to find both the obedience which we could not live out ourselves, and the punishment which we so justly deserve to bear ourselves. In him we can have, find hope that both these things are enough in your sight. And we are now made holy and perfect in your eyes. Lord, please allow us to rest in these truths today and to be encouraged by them as we look to partake of the table of you and as we depart. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen.